Good morning and welcome to a Professional Practices Alliance event in which we are going to be looking at diversity and inclusion in partnerships and in wider uh, firms as well. I am a partner specialising in employment and partnership law with a particular interest in discrimination, diversity and inclusion at law firm C.M. Murray, one of the members of the PPA, um, and I'm delighted to be hosting this event this morning. Um, we have a lot, as you might imagine, to get through this morning and loads of really interesting contributions that I'm really keen that you get to hear. So I'm going to keep my introductions to a minimum because I'm not the person you came to hear talk. I'm um, really pleased to introduce two guest speakers today to our panel. Um, I'm going to go in the order on my screen. So first up, we've got Ray Berg. Ray is managing partner of Osborne Clark, and he is a managing partner of a law firm who has really put diversity and inclusion at the core of the business. Um, he's very passionate about it. He's also a trustee of the Social Mobility Business Partnership. And under his leadership, Osborne Clark have introduced a wide range of initiatives leading to greater engagement and diversity and inclusion. And he's going to share with us today some of his experiences and expertise and insights. Um, we also have Mohsen Ismail, who is the founding principal of Newham Collegiate Sixth Form, a former lawyer, escaped the profession, unlike the rest of us, and set up the Sixth Form in 2014 to improve social mobility from some of the most disadvantaged young people in London. And he um, not only works with young people and looks at ways of getting them, um, you know, improved uh, options for universities and jobs but also works with law firms on what they can do to improve their diversity and inclusion in practice. And then we have some familiar faces to you. So we've got Corin Staves, partner at Morris Turner Gardner, um, specialist in partnership law and brings to this panel session her expertise in both governance and regulatory issues in the legal sector. We have got David Shufflebotham, who is founder of Pep Up Consulting, former law firm HR director, so has got real life practical experience of implementing DNI initiatives, um, and now specialises in partner performance evaluations and um, how we reward those partners in our partnership. And last but definitely not least, we've got Emma Bartlett, one of my partners at CM Murray, who is a specialist discrimination and employment and partnership law expert, but also has got lots of experience from being DNI partner in a former firm in the city. So um, those are our excellent panelists today. So um, cracking onto the topic. So Corin said to me um, when we were catching up about this topic that um, the, uh, I missed this. In fact, I missed the Mars landing altogether, it would seem, but um, the, the, the NASA representative who was interviewed um, following the successful landing of Perseverance on Mars listed the fact that the team was diverse as the second um, aspect of the team and so clearly put diversity as a really core and important aspect of that team and um, was one of the reasons that he thought it was successful um, and that probably is not a surprise to most of the people on this call because you're probably here because you recognize that diversity and inclusion is a really significant issue in the legal services in which we work but also in the wider um, business community and beyond so that's what's brought us here today um, just before we start, and we had a couple of questions put in in advance, I should say that we're not just talking about diversity in the Equality Act legal sense. So we're not just talking about diversity of those nine protected characteristics, which you've probably heard me and some of my colleagues talk about before. We're talking about it in a slightly broader sense, and we'll come on to discuss it in more detail. But we are including, for example, social mobility, because social diversity is a huge issue and it can be intrinsically li linked to other aspects of diversity, such as race. And so it's vitally important that we consider alongside our discussion today. So before we get into the detail of what people can do in more practical things, I just want to ask each panelist to give me a really quick answer as to how big a problem you think diversity and inclusion is in law firms right now. So we'll start uh, with Ray. Morning, everybody. I, I think it is a big, big challenge. Um, and I think actually the, the, the Mars example you um, just gave is, is probably a really great example of why it is, because I think the other big challenge that I put down to all partnerships and all law firms at the moment is to be innovative. Uh, and I think the, 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 the simple answer is diversity drives innovation a difference of views and perspectives, that collective intelligence. And it is that whole diversity perspective. We're not just talking about race or colour. It's neurodiversity, social mobility. And the more diverse we can make our practices and businesses, the more innovative we're going to be, um, I think, is, is the short answer. And Emma? 
Oh, well, I remember when diversity as a topic was first sort of came on the horizon about 20 years ago and nobody really knew what it meant. Um, and now when you get into law firms, I think diversity is still a, a massive issue. Um, not so much at the junior end, but at the as you get to the more senior end and the partnership, um, you look around and have to see whether or not we're representative of the markets in which we work. Are we representative of our clients? Are we representative of um, people who are qualifying as lawyers now? Probably uh, not as much as we should be. And so it is a, I think it still remains very much a challenge rather than a problem for law firms, but one that law firms are generally willing to do something about. Thanks. And Mossen. Um, yeah, I echo what the other panelists said. I think it is still a, a big issue. Um, and I think for me, seeing students from less privileged backgrounds trying to access the legal profession, I think there's been lots of um, excellent work being done over the um, last uh, couple of years. And when I compare it to my own experience, there's definitely lots of fantastic programs, but still getting a vacation place and getting a training contract and then feeling as part of the tribe when you're within the uh, legal profession to feel comfortable and confident in that profession to see yourself forge a career and move to partnership. I think that's still an issue that the legal profession needs to deal with. Thank you. And David? Yeah, again, echoing what the other panellists have said, and, and, and I'd echo what Lucin has just said, there's a lot of groupthink uh, within the upper echelons of partnerships still. It's very clannish, um, and sometimes that masquerades under the, the badge of culture and preservation of a certain type of culture. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that uh, picking up on Ray's point, Groupthink isn't a great place to be in a in a really uncertain world and where uh, you've got a really very, very dynamic legal industry. So from a socioeconomic through to purely business economics, um, yes, a big challenge and something for people to get right. And I feel bad because, Corin, you're the fifth, uh, sixth, fifth person. So I know people have stolen your ideas, but what do you think? It's, it's selfish. Firms like to be successful partners like to be successful clients are diverse and firms will only succeed if they have lots of clients so diversity and inclusion is vital thank you and um, so moving on to what it means and I, I know this might be um you know really kind of common ground to some of you but just so we can kind of go back to basics emma can you just summarize for everybody um what we mean by diversity and inclusion thank you um i said diversity is essentially just recognizing difference. Without inclusion, diversity means nothing. Inclusion is where differences are valued to enable everyone to thrive at work. And an inclusive working environment is one in which everybody feels that they belong without having to conform and that their contribution matters and that they can be themselves and therefore reach their full potential at work. So an inclusive workplace will be one that has fair policies and practices in place and enables a diverse range of people to work together effectively. I think that's that's it in a nutshell. <coughs> and for those people listening who think, okay, that's great, but how do I know how diverse or how inclusive my organisation is? How do you even start to measure where you are in terms of on your diversity and inclusion journey? Well, there's an old adage that what gets valued gets measured and what gets measured gets done. And I think that's really true with diversity. And um, you don't just measure diversity, you have to measure inclusion as well. So you can measure diversity by um, looking at your gender representation or your ethnicity representation. Um, but in terms of inclusion, it's all about creating an environment where your workforce feel confident to offer different opinions and experiences. And um, as a, a, my colleagues were talking about, innovation and change is really important. So you measure it through um, representation. Um, and then you can look at ways of um, how do you quantify inclusion? Well, you do it through employee engagement surveys, feedback surveys, 360 reviews. Um, you've got data already. You will have exit interviews um, and you will have data on who is applying to your firm. Um, what sort of people are you attracting? What, what's your candidate base? And all of these are metrics that you can use to measure um, how well, how diverse and inclusive you are and how diverse and inclusive you are perceived as well. Thank you. And Ray, coming to you, um, 
I want you to kind of um, give us a sense of the time period across which you would be measuring. But before we get to that, do you want to just give us a, a brief kind of um, add on to what Emma said about why it's important and um, what the benefit is in measuring it and tracking it? And all, but, but also then whether you can do that in a snapshot or whether you have to look at that on a year on year gradual basis. Sure. So I, I think Emma, I think Emma's hit the nail on the head because you, you can be very diverse but you're not inclusive. And I know it's a slightly sort of trite comment. You know, you can get asked to the party, but if no one asks you to dance, what's the point of being at the party? And I think we'll probably come on to that a bit later on because, you know, you can you can have all the women you want in the law firm or, or all different representations from some of the protected groups, but actually if you feel excluded, you're going to opt out. And so you've got to measure year on year the progress. Um, so you can't, uh, it gives you a snapshot in a period of time. We could change our recruitment policy and make us more diverse, but actually, is it actually making a difference? So I think you have to see it year on year and you have to look at the sort of pure stats. But I think those inclusive, that the data around inclusiveness is probably more critical. And so as an example, we, we started using our SRA, the SRA data collection as the sort of basis point. We wanted to add some qualitative data. Do you feel more inclusive does do you feel the firm is more inclusive than it was last year and we also set ourselves a target of increasing the number of people who actually completed the data survey because and as an example we, within the sort of lgbt plus community over a two-year period we saw the number of lgbt people increase from something in our firm two to percent to eight percent or registering recognize themselves that now i don't think we actively set out to recruit that many more people within that grouping but it obviously showed us that what we were doing meant more people felt comfortable recognizing themselves or acknowledging that and yet i mean this month is lgbt plus history month i'm sure everyone knows we had an event yesterday which was an hour comedy show uh, a live comedy show with, with three um, comedians we had over 150 people from oc on on the show now i think to me, that's proof because actually people, now it doesn't mean they're all in the LGBT plus, but they felt comfortable. They didn't think someone's going to go, oh, am I going to be picked on because I've just watched this LGBT plus comedy show. And I think that just enables us to measures like that, those points in time can show the progression and how more included people actually feel. And I think to the point that's raised earlier by the panelists about being yourselves and therefore being authentic and being able to succeed. Thanks. And um, Corinne, do we as lawyers focusing on, on the legal practice for a moment, um, although this conversation applies more widely to professional practices, but do we have to measure these things? Are we obliged? Is there a regulatory obligation on us to take certain steps? Thanks, Sarah. Well, regulators talk the talk. Um, I guess the, the bigger question is whether they walk the walk. Certainly, um, there's thinking about sort of the wider professions, ICAEW, IPREG, lots of people have you know, diversity and inclusion hubs, lots of them in their codes of conduct will require um, not to unfairly unlawfully discriminate, for example. The SRA, thinking about the legal profession, is I think a bit better in the sense that there is a requirement to gather diversity data and there's quite a lot of information about the profession as a whole, which highlights the gaps that there are. Um, particularly, I, I think, is most interesting, the difference between the entrance to the profession and those people that get to the senior ranks within the profession, because that's quite stark um, in, in the legal profession. But I think what I struggle with a little bit is, uh, and you know, the SRA has um, promoted equality and diversity to a principle in, in the last um, kind of full overhaul of, of our code of conduct. So, so, and that was back into 2019. But I think the trouble is that I can't see it being enforced. I can't see a regulator, the SRA included, turning around and saying, this firm, you know, it, it doesn't have any diversity or, or, or inclusion sort of in its DNA. It's, it's, it's just sort of playing lip service to this. We're not gonna find any sort of enforcement action against the firm because it hasn't got a, a diverse partnership. So I think that it creates a skeleton there for firms to sort of to use those resources and to, to make decisions, but it, it does leave it all with the firms and the partners themselves to actually ensure that progress is made because um, that they're not gonna be enforcing it in my view. And um, before we sort of move on to 
how we actually look at that pipeline and look at getting people through from the junior end to partnership. And um, Mossin, what do you think in your experience of seeing people trying to get into the profession, which is obviously where we need to start? And, you know, we're very focused in this group on partnership and what it looks like at partnership level. But if you don't have the pipeline, you're never going to have the diverse partnership. What do you think is the biggest challenge for aspiring lawyers now um, to get in the to profession and stay in the profession? I think there are there are several um, issues, but I just want to quickly touch on um, the conversation that was about inclusion and diversity. And I think one of the things about um, getting um, young people from an area that I grew up in, Newham, second most deprived borough, to feel included in the legal profession, and again, talk about being part of the tribe. There's one thing doing that, and then the other thing about those students actually feeling that way. So, for example, a very simple um, anecdote, um, I grew up eating food with my hands because that's what culturally my parents did. When I went to my first formal dinner at the, at, at the law firm, all this cutlery was laid out. And you can imagine, I'm looking at this stuff thinking, where do I start? And yes, I should be, I should be trying to engage in meaningful conversations and networking, but the whole time I'm anxious about how I look and how I feel in that environment. And I think law firms, yes, they do lots of things about making people feel included. But it's those subtle things, the subtle cultural differences that are sometimes not recognized or picked up that can make um, people feel as though they don't belong there and they don't feel part of that, um, that culture. And it's about then trying to fit in and not be yourself because you don't want to be the outsider. So I just wanted to share that particular anecdote as part of that conversation. And I think also the, uh, we have to be realistic about how much we really want people to be themselves when, you know, when we talk about that. You, know, you see some of the young people walking down in New where I grew up, where I grew up, um, you know, lines in their heads, slits in their eyebrows, the way that they dress. And are we, are we going to say to them, be yourself when you're going to be included in that law firm because it's still a client-facing uh, firm in an industry, or do you have to be polished and you have to be a certain way? So I think there needs to be an honest conversation about how far we're willing to go with, with that conversation within the legal profession. Um, coming back to your, uh, the other question around um, the difficulties and challenges. Look, I, I think for me, in terms of social mobility, it's still about getting young people from less privileged backgrounds to get the grades to go to some of the best universities to allow them to access that. And, I, and I'm reluctant to um, see, and I'm, I might be a minority in this, but the, um, the grades or the entry criteria being diluted for young people from, from less privileged backgrounds. And I say that because there are talented um, young people. It just needs educational institutions like mine and others to do better at supporting them. It all can't be about law firms doing everything. It has to be has to has to also be from educational institutions. But then I think the other thing to, to think about is rather than looking at a young person from a less privileged background and saying they don't have the etiquette polished, they don't speak a certain way. I think what we need to look at is say they, they already come from a disadvantage or a deficit in that sense, and it's about potential and support. And can they take on feedback? And that's what we should be looking at rather than the finished article because they don't have the silver spoon. They're not going to be as polished as someone who's born to a middle-class family. That's just a complete fact. And therefore, what should law firms be looking for? And that's a shift in the mindset rather than saying, this is the finished article, but has this person got potential that in the next five, 10 years that we can actually support them to, to partnership? And, and do you think that social mobility and people from social disadvantaged background are the have got a particular challenge right now compared to say I think probably if we'd been talking having this conversation 15 years ago we'd have been really focused on gender diversity or racial diversity in the profession do you think that has shifted in terms of both the issue and the and, and the perception of what the problem is or do you think it's always been the same well, I think it's been the same I think the social social mobility issue has always been a, a problem you know um you know, one of the groups that are not talked about that much are white working class boys, for example, they seem to be missed out in all of these conversations. And if you look at their educational attainment, it's shocking. It's probably probably the worst in the country. But there, there doesn't seem to be that many initiatives talking about um, white working class boys. And I think class, socioeconomic background are inextricably linked. And therefore, you know, firms and education institutions should be doing as much as they can to support that pipeline all the way through. Um, and, and, and my view, and I'm sure we'll touch on it later, is that law firms spend a lot of time doing really um, excellent one-off events, getting people in, showing the swanky offices, which always uh, is, I really liked and enjoyed, and the lovely free lunch. But there isn't that continuity 
with the young people throughout their journey, which they really need if we're going to make a significant difference and, in, and make some inroads into seeing uh, young people from disadvantaged backgrounds access law firms, stay at law firms, feel part of it, and then move into partnership as well. Thanks. And yeah, I think um, what's come out in the discussions we've all had is part of the big challenge is getting people to stay and making sure that you don't get that fallout between sort of trainee, NQ, associate, senior associate, and that they feel included enough to want to stay there and build a career um, and become a partner. Um, so recognising that there probably is a lack of diversity at partnership level in, in a lot of law firms, um, not necessarily all of them, of course, um, we will look at sort of practical measures and things like that in due course. Um, but um, Ray, do you have any examples you would like to give in terms of um, kind of seeing uh, disadvantaged uh, people from disadvantaged backgrounds dropping out? What sort of how big a problem do you think it is? And have you seen that in practice? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, right? I sit on as a trustee on the Social Mobility Business Partnership, and I couldn't agree more with what Mason's just said. It's it, it's a huge issue, and I think it actually cuts through all, all of this. And I think the ed, education is at the heart of it, this, and I think it, it, in the sense of the educational institutions need to do more, and I think, but also law firms need to educate from from the beginning and even using the example of the big shiny buildings it's it's great to sort of bring kids in we know um through, through the the program um says smbp is is aimed at under kids from underprivileged backgrounds um in year 12 a lot of them often go to and they have a week's work experience at a law firm and then five days at four clients and then one at a sports institution about resilience but often the kids turn up and they're just overawed and overwhelmed by the big shiny buildings and just bail and don't even go so it, it, it's before that and then i think you, you've got to understand you you're not that attractive because you walk in i don't belong here and, and, and from the conversations, and I mean, I know myself, you know, I, I, I went to, um, I was at school in Brent, which is probably on a par with, with Neuro, I suspect, in terms of even 30 years ago. Um, and sort of coming into to a magic circle firm, I was just, I did not know what people were talking about. When people were talking about cloisters, I thought they meant the church, not skiing, you know? And it's like realising that those sorts of conversations about, uh, over the, the the sort of coffee cooler and water cooler can put people off the way you speak it gets commented on and I think you've just got to be aware of that and I think that constant awareness thing understanding I, mean, I had a conversation um about people not looking people in the eyes again it's a cultural thing and you need to get this in, in people's mind minds and understandings and goes back to I guess David's group thing you continue to recruit in mini me's you're never going to understand any of these differences Sorry, yeah. that was a very long-winded answer. I'm not no, sure I actually was... answered the question. <laughs> well, I've got I've got another one for you. So, in terms of um, the point that um, Mossen made about, you know, do they really want di diversity? Like, how far are firms prepared to go to um, recruit people who, I suppose, don't look like them and are not recruiting in their image? Um, do you think firms need to be braver in terms of, you know, if they are held back by a fear of client perception and on I think what we all think is that clients like diversity but I think firms might be worried based on what Mossen was saying and um, sort of touching on that point do you think firms just need to be braver do you need to take a stand and say we are going to recruit way more diverse backgrounds and if the clients don't like it then tough tough we'll just keep going I, you, you've got to do what's right for your business your clients and your people but I know that we are not going to get the best talent if we don't recruit from a more diverse background. I know we're not going to get work from some of our clients because they're starting to measure us on diversity and inclusion stats. So there's a, whether, you, whether you think this is morally right or wrong is kind of irrelevant. There's a, if you're a partner in a partnership, it's a business imperative. And it, for me, that was a bit of a leap of faith because I always sort of said this is the right thing to do because it's it's fair it's moral it's just but actually if you're having resistance you've got to kind of hit the business imperative button because you know it, it goes straight to the bottom bottom line and, it, and it's something if you don't invest in you will pay the price which i think is what corinne said corinne said earlier um it, 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 you'll lose clients frankly and david 
what do you think is sort of a major block? You spoke about groupthink. How how vital do you think that is in terms of a, a, a not a problem to overcome if we are to make sure that if we even have a diverse pipeline, we can make sure that pipeline makes its way through to partnership? Yeah, it's it's really um, quite a difficult thing to achieve, I think, because change at the top is like any other change. And and that's always difficult. So you've got to have certain things and you've got to be committed to them all. You can't just pick and choose and leave it to luck because it's not going to happen. Because the way we are wired as, as people, you know, we've got brilliant but lazy brains. We tend to look for the shortcuts to what's going to be safest for us to do. We've got this huge idea of loss aversion, endowment effects, etc. And what that means is that we're we're really scared and, and, and lawyers are even more scared because we're, we're, we've trained to pick up the negatives. So we're very, um, very well versed in making up a good narrative from a story from, from limited bits of information and then recruiting on a basis that we're really comfortable with. And that is what happens um, within a lot of law firms that prevents people moving up through the ranks to the partnership because you know, as we've said, they, they do self-select out because they don't feel like they can they can be one of the tribe, as, as Norsen has put it, and and succeed. And and I pick out four things that firms have really got to do. Um, one, which firms are, are pretty good at, um, is is communication because they've got to demonstrate their intent to do something about it. But that has been going on for years, and that's just the start. You know, that's that can be really empty rhetoric and hyperbole, unless it's backed up with having role models. Right? And that might be a bit of a chicken and egg situation because mm-hmm. um, you've got to be able to demonstrate that it can be done and also that you've got somebody to emulate and also that you're, you're, you're not got that sort of huge imposter syndrome um, that I don't belong here at all. So you've, you've, at some point, you've got to take a risk. Because you've got to say, actually, we do need to re- recruit somebody that can demonstrate this within our firm. So at some point, you've got to go first uh, to 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 bastardize Ray's analogy. You know, you've got to be that person who goes over and asks somebody to dance. You know, take the risk. You've got to get out there. Third thing you need are the systems and processes within your business that allows you to identify who's got the real talent, where's it coming from, and do this on a not not on a on a on a biased basis. Do it on a basis that is really identifying who's got the talent. And to Mustin's point here, you can look at how people close the gap when they've got the potential. You want to select the best people, but often you're not able to do it if you're not really hot on the data and the process that you've got. This goes back to the lazy brain. You know, our brains will make up stories and fill in the gaps. You've got to shunt your brain into its more active, um, into its more active and um, logical and forensic um, mode in order to do this. And you can't do that unless you've got something for it to bite on. And the last thing you've got to do if you're going to really embed it is you've got to be really clear about the skills that the people within your organization have to actually act on the things and act on that communication, act on the input, act on what the role models are doing. And the skills are the are the often the last thing thought about, but they're the the thing that creates the greatest amount of change. Um, overall, you know, once once you've once you've got the spearhead in, these are the things that really embed it. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about unconscious bias later, you know, and and, and about un- unconscious bias training. That does build self awareness, and it does build a, a level of of skill in self awareness. But it's really just scratching the surface. So it's great, but the skills I'm talking about are much more thoroughgoing than that. So those four things, comms, having role models, systems and processes, and the skills, I think that's what's got to all come together if businesses are, are really serious about making a change. And that sort of leads on, Emma, to a question for you, which is what can firms do in terms of recruiting into the partnership or at senior level from a legal perspective? So, you know, David mentions about, you know, making sure you have role models. If you look at your partnership and you see it's not diverse, what legal tools are available to you to actually recruit more diversity into the group? Oh, that's a really good question. 
So um, there is such a thing as um, positive action where you can use this to um, grow your pipeline um, and include more people. So I'll talk about that. I'll talk about um, some practical steps as well that you can do. But positive action is um, something which is permitted under the equality legislation. And it allows an employer to assist protected groups which are disadvantaged or underrepresented in a particular job. So um, if you look at uh, senior levels within your organization, if you feel that they are underrepresented um, in terms of uh, women, for example, or uh, any other people with a protected characteristic, you can use positive action to um, increase uh, the representation within that particular arm. Um, positive action is not the same as positive discrimination, which is unlawful. So positive discrimination is where you um, just simply uh, give more favorable treatment to somebody with a particular protected characteristic, but it's not um, proportionate to do so. So uh, examples are probably the best way of doing this. So if, for example, you recognize that you have um, a dearth of female partners, and so you decide to then solely interview um, women to fill um, female partner roles, whether or not they have the relevant qualifications or um, anything based on merit to actually have the interview in the first place, let alone do the role. That is positive discrimination and that would be unlawful because um, it's there's no reasonable cause for you to be interviewing somebody just you're interviewing them just because they're a woman not because they have their relevant characteristics um, qualifications for the role whereas positive action is slightly different firstly you have to have a reasonable belief that there is underrepresentation from a particular group within that um, area um, and you can have a, a reasonable belief by looking at um, so we're a, a law firm that operates in London um, the percentage of the working population in London um, may be 50% women and 50% men. So you can immediately look at that and say, well, our, at this particular level, we are not representative of um, male, female within the organisation. And therefore, there are certain things that you may want to do um, by way of positive action to improve that. So one thing you can do, and this is the more practical tips, is where you... Um, go to your recruiters and say, I I'm not interviewing anybody for this role unless you offer me 50% women and 50% men. So um, you're deliberately going out and making sure that you have an equal proportion um, of, of who are you looking at in your pool to, um, to recruit from. So that's, that's one thing you can do. Um, you can also uh, make sure that you are uh, drawing from a diverse so again, drawing from a diverse pool, apart from making sure that anybody who is who you're working with is on the same page as you in terms of we want um, a diverse uh, workforce here, is going further afield from where you've typically recruited from, and where law firms, well, certain law firms would always go to the Russell Group of universities. You might want to make sure that you go beyond that and that you go to other universities where there may be a more diverse population in the student population so that you're attracting people um, from different populations as well. So it's, it's that sort of thing that you can do in order to um, improve your diversity within the organisation. And then one more thing, because I'm talking there largely about external recruitment, and you have to look internally first. And um, uh, the number of um, women who are uh, joining the workforce as trainees, you generally have at least 50% um, uh, female-male ratio within your trainees. Often it's slightly higher. It could be sort of 60, 40% in favor of women at the um, graduate recruitment end. But by the time you get to the senior associate level, so you're looking from your pool of organically grown partners, um, women are opting out. And quite often they're opting out. There's a whole variety of reasons why women may choose to opt out of the profession. But one that one or two you can do something about. And the one that you can do something about is to make sure that they feel that they can succeed if they want to stay and that they can manage their work-life balance within that organisation, that they don't look at the partnership group and think, I don't belong there, or there's no support there for me, or they all look quite crazy and I don't want to be part of that. 
So that's that's something that you can do something about. So changing your perception and making people want to stay because they feel that they can participate and contribute, I think is something you can do something about. Thanks, Emma. Um, I've had a couple of questions on that, but we'll come back to those towards the end. Um, because I want to just move on and ask Ray, right, so you've decided you need more diversity on your partnership and in your pipeline, but actually how do you, I mean, this is probably what everyone's uh, got up in the morning partly to hear, is how do you actually do that? So how did you get that at the core of your business and how did you get buy-in from the other partners to do that? Well, I, I guess the first point is to say we're, we're not there yet. I wouldn't claim that we're there yet. And I think that's probably critical to recognise that th this isn't um, some a box that you're going to tick and you've done it and it drops off the agenda. You have to realise that you've got to embed a diverse and inclusive approach in, in the firm, in the way it does business, in the way it attracts its people and in the way it wants to work with its clients. So it's got to be key and core to your strategy. So understanding that actually this is going to help drive our business forward for, for a number of reasons. So it's, it was embedded at the heart of our people's strategy. Um, the simplest answer is I haven't stopped talking about it since the moment I took over as managing partner. And it's now on the agenda at partner meetings, location partner meetings, team meetings, every meeting you want, because it's got to be visible. It's got to be clear that we're committed to it. We've then got to understand what, what are we trying to achieve? You know, is it, what, what are the issues? So we recognize that actually there's six strands for, for our DNI strategy. And, you know, fairly obvious it's gender, it's ethnicity, social mobility, LGBT plus, we call it mind and body, but, you know, mental, physical disability. And don't forget age as well as part of this. You know, I think one of the key things is that actually, of those six categories, you can't actually see most of them. They're not always visible. And that's the other thing to, to remember. Um, and so it, it, it's a journey of education. It's collecting the data. It, it's being able to, to put yourself up there, have targets you're going to achieve and recognize what's going to happen if you don't achieve them. So you've got to hold people accountable. And I think in the beginning of this, and, and I've got David in part to thank for this, because David was, was our uh, chief people officer when I took over as, as managing partner and really helped kind of put this into action. We recru um, recruited a, a, our first diversity and wellbeing manager because it was all well and good me talking about grand ideas and schemes. It had to be actually executed. We have to have outputs because you can talk about it until you're blue in the face, but unless you start putting everyone through unconscious bias training who's involved in a promotion decision or a recruitment decision you haven't got anything to do you've got to have someone to analyze the data to put it out there you know and look, there's lots of I would say there's lots of issues around the gender pay gap reporting but it did allow us to kind of have something to put a story on and, and show a kind of journey and what we were doing. So for us, the gender pay gap was just one piece. And we actually volunteered from the very beginning to include ethnicity pay gap as well in that, um, because we just thought it was the right thing to do. And it, it, it's that journey of education. Um, one key thing, I think, for us was we um, and to, have got the national equality standard, which is something that the government does in conjunction or EY does on behalf of the government, which I think it's the only sort of nationally recognised diversity accreditation. And now it, it's not box ticking, but what it does is assess you over about 35 different criteria and you have to pass on 20 five of them or something like that, I think. But it gets someone to come into your organisation objectively and look through a different set of eyes. Because I think I could have sat there and go, yeah, we're doing great around diversity. I know exactly what our diversity strategy is. But actually, I think the biggest challenge for partnerships is that it's great the leadership team knows and understands the strategy, but it has to be implemented and executed on a day-to-day -day basis by the line managers. And with the great respect, the line managers are the partners. And that's where it often falls down. So there's a whole host of sort of questions and surveys that the, the NES does and goes through and shows you the areas you need to improve on, whether it's processes, recruitment, clarity of strategy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then helps you actually have much more meaningful targets other than just pure statistics of percentage of women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's something we can continually push ourselves against in terms of improving our, our performance. 
And I think it's just not letting up, frankly, because it, it, it's not something you will ever, ever, you know, can just drop off the agenda. And, so, you know, we're a thousand plus people. Every single one of them is different. And our, our journey's got to be that they each feel they've got the same opportunity, irrespective of background, et cetera, to, to achieve what they want to achieve. Thanks. And I, I always struggle slightly with how best to measure inclusion. I think measuring diversity is really easy. Measuring inclusion is really hard. And do you think that, in fact, if you end up with a diverse partnership, for example, that is a product of inclusivity in the firm at more junior level? Possibly. I, 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 you, you've, got to, you've got to really look at the at how how people feel because you can you can show it's diverse but that won't necessarily mean it's inclusive no. um and so i think it, it really is digging it, it's a step in the right direction and you're more likely to have an inclusive environment because if if i look at a firm and i can see in the leadership team there's a black person there's a woman there's a you know there's a gay person there's someone from who went to a state school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're visible and they're outspoken about it. Because if you look at the leadership board at, at, at OC, I could point to the fact that four of the eight people are women, but it's all white. But actually, when you look at it, of the eight people, six are first-generation university. Four of them went to state schools. So actually, we need as the leaders to be much more outspoken. So the statistics don't give you the whole picture I think so you've got to dig, dig a bit deeper into it but it's definitely a positive indicator I would say. Mm. And and how do you think dropping out on the way to partnership is one of the main problems we have as a profession in terms of getting diverse leaders or do you think the problem is sort of more that David flagged which is that, that the leaders are not promoting enough uh, into the leadership? you're not going to have you're not going to have it if they're not in your firm but if but the problem is how do you get them into your firm in the first place and i think that goes to the to, to the point around social mobility that people are opting out and choosing not to go to the profession because they still see it as white male pale and stuffy and crusty it, it, it it's daunting it, it it's overwhelming and, and it's not seen as something that's inclusive which i think is unfair but that's the image we've got as law firms, as partnerships, that we need to change in the eyes of the young kids at, at Mossin School. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and David, just a point, you said you'd come back to um, unconscious bias training and sort of confirmation bias issues. Can you just give us a sort of short answer as to, as to whether it's worth it, whether you think it's the right thing to do and, and is it enough? Uh, it's absolutely worth it. It's not enough. You've got to do all those other things I mentioned earlier because you've got to take steps to crowd out the easy, shortcut, lazy brain decision-making that will creep in if you let it. And it's, it's, as Ray's talking about the, the data there, you've got to have access to data that's at a granular level that, that you don't just trust headline figures. Um, and then you've got to take action on it. Even once you've had diversity, um, sorry, um, unconscious bias training doesn't get rid of your biases just makes you aware of them and then you've got to have the activity and the actions to allow them to be put to one side as much as you possibly can and to recognize them so yeah it's it is critical that it happens but it's not a panacea far from it and i suppose that leads into a question um Mossin, in terms of all the gateways, there are multiple gateways into the profession and then throughout the profession into partnership. And, um, you know, I think things like unconscious bias um, are there to deal with problems where people are making their own decisions about things and not looking at the data. But obviously, when people leave school, one would think that, you know, they have a qualification and that is a data point. Where do you think is the biggest gateway where we are losing diversity from school to university to traineeship to qualification to partnership. My view is I still think we, we don't recruit enough talented people into the profession to begin with. And I think Gray was absolutely right about that. Um, 
the way, the way young people from less privileged backgrounds see law firms, um, whether they feel as though that there's a place there for them is something that needs to be tackled. And it was great to hear Ray talk about, you know, the collective efficacy of firms, um, talking about communication, uh, the moral imperative, as well as the economic imperative. Um, and I think, I think if we can get more young people um, to have a different viewpoint about how law firms are and the fact that they actually belong there, then I think you'll see a lot more young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, number one, apply, which is what you want and get access to those firms. So then you can actually work with them and support them. But then I think, as I said earlier, I don't think it stops there. You know, this idea of, a, you know, there's this notion of meritocracy, but it's, in my view, I think it's a merit meritocratic hubris, really. Um, as I said, if you're, if, you're, if you're born with privilege, then you have all of these additional um, skills and qualities that uh, confirm your bias, if you like, about what you're looking for. Uh, and if you don't, um, then you may you may look at that and say um, it's not the type of person that we want. But really, it has to be a shift in the mindset to talk about talent and ability and nurturing that talent to 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 support and help them and mentoring, coach them all the way through um, into partnership. That's what they want to do. And what can we, as the people sitting in firms in partnerships, do? I mean, um, you know, you mentioned going to visit the shiny buildings and the um, you know the day trips. I mean, presumably that's not enough. And you would say that actually that's not on its own going to transform someone's life and make them suddenly feel like they belong in a law firm. I think the first thing to say is um, law firms are doing amazing work. They, they really are. Um, when I compare it to my experience, they've, it's leaps and bounds to support young people. So there, there are opportunities there. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the shiny building thing. Right? Let me keep coming back to it. Um, I think it has its place because it's aspirational. It inspires young people when they see it. There'll be some people who look at that and think, well, I definitely want to be in a place like this. So it, ha it has its place. But, but what, it needs to, what, what needs to happen is it needs to be a coordinated and comprehensive program. And I think there is a desire now to move really quickly and make lots of changes and almost structurally um, change everything overnight. And that's not going to happen. And I think that's acknowledged by the, the panelists here. And therefore, what, what can we do that's going to be meaningful, that's going to have uh, longevity, that's actually going to have impact. And I think law firms should be working with a certain number of schools. It's impossible to work with anyone and everyone. It's just not gonna happen. The resources are not there, it's gonna be spread thin in terms of time and capacity. So if, if law firms could highlight you know, a certain number of schools from disadvantaged backgrounds in their local area or close to their local area, work with those schools to support certain students, starting from year 10 or year 11, who may have an indication or an understanding or an interest in law, um, and then staying with those young people all the way through up until training at the training contract, then um, recognizing those students who are, uh, who are trainees who are now talented that want to move into partnership, mentoring and coaching and support all the way through, preferably be one person who they've, um, they've known for a long period of time so they have that connection and they feel comfortable and safe with them so, so they can go and speak to them. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do here is to have that safe space for young people. I would have never been able to go to a partner of my, my supervising partner and say, look, I was really freaked out by the cutlery the other day and uh, I don't know what to do about this because I just think they're not gonna understand what I'm talking about. Whereas, you know, where, where is the safe space in those law firms with people who are like them that they can speak to without feeling judged? That's the key. Without feeling judged, it's not going to have an impact on their career. Mm. They say that they're going to think, "Well, what is this guy talking about? He's not. He's not going to be good enough." So I, I think that's the thing: that mentoring, coaching, and that support all the way through, and focused, targeted resourcing um, that law firms have to work with a particular group of um, students and support them all the way through. And I suppose we were talking about quite small scale projects. So I think you do um, some work with some of the law firms and a small number of students. And I, I think sometimes law firms feel that they need to do a big project and, you know, help, you know, multiple different communities, multiple different schools. You're talking about kind of very focused, intense, but small scale. But if everyone did it, it would make a difference. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's highlighting what the gaps are and then it's saying to and, and then putting in measures in place to support them. But the key thing is, it's, it's the, the thing, students are not going to know what they don't know. And that's the problem. You know, you come from a disadvantaged area in Newham. All you see is people like you, they speak like you, they talk like you. It's all the same. It's homogenous in that sense. And then you go to a law firm where it's middle class, white, and then you're freaked out by the whole thing because it's nothing like your environment. 
Um, so it, it's that exposure, continuity. So they think actually, no, I can, it's okay to be in this environment. It's safe, it's, I, I feel comfortable. And that has to do with connectivity and constant um, um, meetings with the people that are in, in law firms. So they get to develop relationships with those people uh, over time and feel as though they, that, that is a safe place for them. Um, I know Ray wants to come in as well. Yeah, so I, mean, I, I, can, I can see that. I know he's keen to come in, so I'm going to just... Go for it. No, sorry, I, I just, there's just a couple of things there, and I'm, I'm going to make a couple of shameless plugs, but I think that would be helpful because I think the, 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 one of the keys is collaboration. No one owns this space, right? No, no one has all the answers, but actually the more we can do as a profession together, the better we'll be. So this is not about OC scoring points on this. This is about all law firms coming better, better to make the legal profession more attractive to more people. And, and that's that's the end of it. So it, the more we can share, the more we can do together. And, and two two organisations that and things to, to sort of be aware of are um, Justin Greening's um, set up something called the Social Mobility Pledge, which was for all businesses to sign up to, to commit to what is levelled up Britain. And it's an organisation which shares best practice uh, and, and allows you to sort of piggyback uh, off that. And, and alongside that, there's also something set up called the Employers Social Mobility Alliance, which again allows organisations to, to sort of share, take part in schemes and, and all the rest of it. So even if you feel, oh, this is going to cost me too much money, it allows you to access the resources of other organisations and take part in schemes like that. And, and the third shameless plug for Social Mobility Business Partnership, which, you know, we put 500 kids from underprivileged backgrounds through this, this, this scheme. But I th- I just to sort of illustrate that the, the point was just made, I went back to my school, Preston Manor, which is in, in Brent, um, which is about 100 metres from where that kid was stabbed uh, at the weekend, unfortunately. So it's a pretty nasty area. I went back there last year to speak to a group of six formers. Um, and I walked in. Uh, and it's Mossin's first point, 26 formers, not one white boy, because none of them made it into the sixth form. They'd all opted out already. So I'd already lost a group of kids in that probably, uh, you know, 17 were women and, and quite a lot were wearing um, hijabs and everything. And first of all, I had to convince them that I'd actually gone to the school. And then suddenly there was that connectivity piece that we're talking about. I asked the question, what, what would stop you coming to to join Osborne Clark. Oh, well, I've been told I wouldn't get on in a law firm if I was wearing a hijab. Now, we've got to therefore, as I said, go out there and break down those stereotypes. It's got to come from both sides. And you've got to remember, these perceptions aren't just from the law firms, they're they're coming from the communities these kids Mm -hmm. are in. They don't know any different. And it's understandable why they might see that and might think that, but it's incumbent on us because if we don't go out there and break those myths, we're never going to reach a whole group of people who would just make such a difference to every single firm and partnership that's on this call this morning. So that's my no, thank plea you. over, sorry. And, and I'm about to just move to some questions that we've had. Before I do, I just want to pick up on something. Um, and sorry to sort of bring it back to the the uh, black letter type stuff. But Corin, you know, once a firm has figured out what it wants to do, would you suggest that they embed that into their LLP agreement, into their policies? What sort of formality should they be adopting in terms of their DNI strategy? Thanks, Sarah. Um, I think that the DNI strategy does need to be part of all the kind of the, the makeup of the firm, the documents of the firm. It's probably more about policies because they live and they breathe and they need to evolve. As, as Ray said, it's not, you know, let's decide on day one what it's going to be and then think about it again in five years, review it. You know, it, it's constant. So I think it needs to be policy. But I do think in terms of the point about leadership and that it has to come from the top, it does need to be part of the, the LLP deed in, in most cases. Um, now, I, I, I one of the favourite parts of my job is reviewing LLP deeds and, and helping people sort of bring those up to date. Ray's laughing because that's made me sound terribly geeky, but <laughs> tragic, tragically, it's true. Um, I don't think it's a big part of that deed. I think it needs to be one of the core duties in terms of compliance and adherence and promotion of those of those kind of core values. Um, but I also think that it's the small things that are gonna make quite a big difference in that context. First of all, taking out bad stuff. Um, For example, things like mandatory retirement ages, ignoring the legal point about whether they're justifiable or not. Um, It it sends a message to people who are older that they're not welcome. That's unhelpful if, if you're really looking for an inclusive culture. 
And also, I mean, one of the things, again, uh, that I spend a lot of time doing is looking at deeds. And we quite often, the clause that we change the most is the parental leave clause. Because in dated deeds, we still talk about maternity and paternity, and that promotes an assumption that you have, you know, a, a mixed sex couple and the women stays at home and looks after the children. The men are there for the first two weeks and then back to their desks. That's not inclusive of, you know, people in same sex relationships. And if I was in a same sex relationship, I'd come to this. I wouldn't even be part of the partnership yet. I'd be reviewing the deed and I'd say, this, this firm doesn't believe that same-sex couples are going to have children. That's not part of, I don't relate to that. I'm not going to be asked to dance at this firm. So I think some of those small changes are, are really, really vital. Thanks. Um, and there's, there's quite a lot of stuff that actually we all spoke about when we kind of got together to chat about this session that we've not been able to cover because it is such a big topic. I'm going to move to some questions. So um, we've had an interesting question, um, which is whether headhunters do enough to drive diversity of candidates and what more should they be doing rather than the lawyers? Does anyone want to take that one? David? Uh, like? Yeah, very happy to deal with that. Answer is no. That's it. Easy. Okay. Thank you. Um, I like a quick answer. Um, related to positive action, Emma, can you just uh, clarify for um, the question is, um, can you use it to prioritise underrepresented groups who have the same or higher scores and behaviours? Um, yes, provided that you believe that they are so firstly, you have to identify whether or not you have an underrepresented, underrepresented group who share a protected characteristic. And then you have to be satisfied that on the basis of that characteristic, they suffer a detriment or they're at a disadvantage. So that's the first part of positive action to, um, to bring it in. Because positive action is um, you take proportionate action to achieve a legitimate aim. And so I think the basis is uh, you enable or encourage those persons to participate in an activity or you provide them with something which helps them meet the relevant requirements um, or you um, enable or encourage them to overcome or minimise um, the detriment or the disadvantage that they're suffering because of their protected characteristic. Sorry, that sounds really legalistic and not really. Have I answered your question there? Right, I think you have, and obviously, happy uh, Emma. I have to chat further about these things um, offline if you need uh, more help on positive action. Um, Sarah, if it's helpful, I, I like to think of positive action as um, it's like a reasonable adjustment, mm. but not just for a disabled person. So it's looking at does the protected characteristic put somebody into that um, category where you would think, right, I need to make an adjustment, and is it reasonable? And then you go through the same steps that you would for to say that's person. really helpful. Thank you. Um, this is another question, which I think actually I might have asked Ray before, um, um, and it's about how you measure inclusion. So, um, for example, you know, if you are, for example, doing some sort of survey, as I said, it's very easy to measure diversity. But, you know, are, let's say you're looking at a department um, only. So you're looking at a small number of people and they don't feel able to answer questions honestly because they're worried about being identified. Do you have any kind of strategies which you've used to overcome that fear in people? Fortunately, we've got lots of really good data protection lawyers here who can help advise us on, on, on what we can and can't do with the data, because I think there's a certain number under which you can't cut the data by different sorts of groupings because it then becomes clear who the, who the people are. But, but where you can do that, we, we try and cut all the data in our engagement surveys. And, you know, the, the, the other thing we did it, it was specifically have an, a, an OC BAME engagement week where we went out and it was, but it was for everyone in the firm, but we, if you were within the BAME community or not, and it was your perceptions and understandings. And that gave us some qualitative sort of feedback to really kind of put a, a, a story and a narrative around the raw data to actually understand what the issues were, because we knew that our statistics were okay, but should be a lot better. So we thought because of the culture of the firm, but actually, what became abundantly clear was our fantastic culture was actually the thing that made people in the BAME, commu the Bain, uh, community within OC feel excluded. And actually, and they also told us that actually it made us less attractive. You know, we were not perceived as an attractive firm to um, the BAME community at large. And, you know, there are a number of factors at, at, at play. You know, maybe 
you know, it's just one thing. And, it, you know, Bristol-based firm, 275-year-old, you know, the statues of William Colson were just put in the river just in the summer. That may have had one element. And, and actually, it's enabled us to accept and recognise that. And we're now working with, with Marvin Rees in Bristol, who is looking at, you know, what do you do? Because those statues are relevant. They're part of history. And you have to understand where you've come from to understand where you are now. And so we're working with Martin, Marvin in Bristol to kind of be part of explaining that story. And we're therefore engaging and reaching a much bigger part of the Bain community in Bristol than we've ever done before. So that simple step has made a real step change for us, which we'd have never have got unless we'd have actually sought qualitative information and feedback beyond the raw data of which category um, do, I, do I fit in? So the SRA survey is not enough. In, no, it's got to go way more. I mean, I think we knew that already. Um, I'm really sadly going to have to wrap up. Um, and I know there's a couple of questions we've not managed to get to. Um, but as I say, do uh, get in touch with us if you want to chat through anything further. Um, before we go, I really just want to ask each speaker to, in as brief time as possible, tell me what your key message would be for those firms who are seeking to improve their diversity and inclusion. So one top tip from each of you. Um, I'm going to start with Corin. Leadership. Onward. Um, David. Oh, you're on mute, but I know you said data, but I think I'm just going to let data, you data, 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 data. <laughs> um, and Emma. Role models, whether they're inside or outside your firm. And Mossen. Oh, the commitment and consistency. And finally, Ray. Education. Brilliant. I like that. Um, very short. I mean, I, I don't normally get such short answers when I ask for that, but that was excellent. And um, thank you all so much for your contributions. Um, I know we could have spoken for a lot longer. Um, we had a lot more um, that we could discuss, but unfortunately time is limited and people have sadly got things that they need to kind of crack on and do um, at 10.30. But um, I really appreciate all the contributions from the panellists and from the contributions from the audience by way of questions. Um, and thank you everybody for listening and for joining.